You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics' The Nom. Kiss me each morning for a million years. Hold me each evening at your side. Tell me you love me for a million years. Then if it don't work out, then if it don't work out, then you can tell me goodbye. Sweeten my coffee with them all. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the 1980s Marvel Comics series, The Nom. I am your host, Tom Panneries. This time around, we are taking a look at the very last issue for penciler Michael Golden, as well as protagonist Ed Marks. So appropriately, we've got Then You Can Tell Me Goodbye by The Casinos, which hit number 13 on the Billboard Hot 100 on February 18, 1967, as our opening song. If you listen to it, it's kind of an odd song to hit the top 40 because it feels like it's, well, five or ten years too late. But then again, that was the 60s. One month, Jefferson Airplane is taking off. Yep, pun intended. And the next, the Archies are topping the charts. Plus, I think it's appropriate for today's issue, which is, of course, a goodbye issue. To recap up to this point, when the series began, we saw Ed Marks get on a plane which is a little tough for him because he gets airsick and eventually, well, he lands take two. To recap up to this point when the series began, we got saw Ed Marks get on a plane, which was a little tough for him because he gets airsick. And eventually, he lands in Vietnam where he joins the ranks of the 23rd Infantry and he became part of Sergeant Polkow's unit. From there, he became friends with Mike Albergo, and eventually Rob, after Rob left his job with his boss, Top, who was eventually removed from his position when it was discovered how crooked he was. Ed saw his fair share of combat, both in the jungle and the city. He had to deal with Albergo's death from sniper shot. Along the way, we've seen some guys leave either because their tour is over, they get shot, or unfortunately they die. And we've seen new guys come over. Now it's time for Ed Marks' last day, or as they say in the title, and a wake-up. Which was written by Doug Murray, with breakdowns by Mike Golden, finishes by Bob Camp, letters by Edit, and colors by Phil Felix. It was edited by Mike Higgins, Larry Hama was the consulting editor, Pat Redding was the managing editor, and Tom Falco was your editor-in-chief. The cover is by Golden, and has a purple, pink, and orange palette showing the guys from the 23rd running out of a chopper after touchdown. We open in February 1967 on the road to Tan San Nut Air Force Base. Rob is in the back seat with one of the officers and is looking at a few pages of orders. He asks if this is for real. The officer, who by the bars on his hat we see as a captain, tells Rob who knows, but he doesn't care, especially since the next day he's headed back to the world. Rob sees him off the next day and then heads to the depot to get replacement guys. They pile into the Jeep and head to the 23rd where they are greeted by Ed Marks, who's 12 days in a wake-up short. Santos greets them as well, and that is all who happen to be there because the rest of the squad is out. 
It's also pretty quiet because there's a truce for Tet. One of the new guys asks what Tet is, and Marx explains, well, it's basically the Vietnamese equivalent of Christmas, and they haven't broken the truce yet. Our three new guys are Andy Clark, who are the other guys call Aesop because he's a bit of a writer, Jimmy Rubino, a singer from New York, and Jeff Brooks, who has been in the Army for 12 years. A fourth guy, who we see from the back, has a large afro with a pick stuck in it, tells him his name is Casey Brown and he doesn't give biographies. Later that evening, they go to see a film, which is a Dracula movie, and features Dracula biting into the net of a significantly buxom woman, as you do. And suddenly there's an explosion. One of the new guys says, what was that? And Rob tells him that it's Charlie breaking his own truce. He then turns to Ed and says, seems like old times, eh, Ed? After the truce has expired, the 23rd takes back to the field, and Ed is grumbling to himself that he's got a little more than a week left, and he's out in the brush. Rob tells him not to worry, and at the end of the day, they finish their work and start to head home, while the army drops defoliant on the area, a different type of defoliant that kills all the plants, making them easier to find. At the NCO club that evening, the guys have a drink with a couple of the new recruits, while Brown and Ram Narain sit at the bar and stew. Brooks tells Ed and Rob that Brown has a huge chip in his shoulder, and the guys comment about how Ramnarain seems to be that way as well. The next morning, the guys head out again to the Mekong Delta as part of some large mission, but the result is that they don't find anything, and Ed remarks that was another waste of time. The next day, Ed stays back and hangs out while the guys go out, and that evening, Rubino picks up his stereo from the PX. They hook it up, and they play it. Ed leaves the hooch to get some quiet, and Rob meets up with him. Ed tells Rob that he never thought he'd make it, Rob says that, yeah, he was a little green, but he did okay, but he'll do fine back in the world. They then head to the club for a drink. The next morning, Ed wakes from a dream where he was remembering everything, from the missions out in the jungle to the villagers they found slaughtered to Albergo. He begins packing up. He gets pretty bored, and then he meets up with the guys at the club after they've come back. Ramnerin continues to scowl at him, and Brooks, who thinks he wishes he knew what it was with those two while everyone carouses. After the night at the club, and after Ed pukes in the jeep, the guys take him to a hut out in the ville where he runs to that kid who had been selling wares a few issues ago, and who's got a girl for him to see. Ed wakes up on the morning of his last day, completely hungover and not realizing how he got there, and he stumbles home. The guys rib him a little, and then we go to see Sarge, who shakes his hand and gives him a goodbye, telling him it was a pleasure to serve with him. Rob then gives him a ride out to the airfield and shakes his hand, wishing him goodbye. Ed gets on his flight, and a flight attendant asks him if she can do anything for him. He asks for some Dramamine, because he has a little problem. And on the tarmac, Rob says, Godspeed, Ed Marks. Have a good life. This issue reads really quickly, mainly because a whole lot doesn't happen. It seems like when one is as short as Ed is, he gets the chance to take a breather and just get ready to pack up and go home, and Perhaps because of that, it just flies by very quickly and he's gone. We don't get the end here because we get new characters and a little bit more character development and those who are getting going to be left behind. I'm not sure yet why Ramnerain has developed such a chip on his shoulder, other than that he's been very angry at Whitey in the last few issues. Adding Brown to the mix will definitely do something for the dynamic in the 23rd, and it'll be interesting to see what Murray does with those issues. When Ed introduces himself as, Hey guys, I'm Ed Marks, and I'm so short I can taste it. Twelve days and a wake up. You can see that there's still quite a bit of that bright-eyed kid who arrived back in issue number one. In fact, 
I like how we get a callback to issue number one with the movie theater and the explosions outside with Rob giving the new guys the same advice Albergo gave Ed that he shouldn't worry about it because Charlie wasn't going to get too close. And by the way, I tried to look up what horror film that might have been because I figured out it might have been like a Hammer Dracula feature like Dracula Prince of Darkness or something, but I could not find that matched up, uh, one that matched up for the time. So I guess it's just your kind of typical vampire flick. Ed uh, is being a curmudgeon in the bush, and uh, it makes sense if you remember what happened to Albergo. He's obviously a little worried about his own safety, and yeah, he's a little annoyed that he has to keep doing this when his time is so short. Plus, if you pay enough attention when the army defoliates the forest, they don't uh, they don't use napalm this time. For the most part, uh, we've seen them out of these missions and calling in an, either an airstrike or calling in napalm where they basically set the jungle on fire. In this case, they're actually using Agent Orange, and I'll, I'll give you more about Agent Orange in the historical context portion of, of this episode. Golden's artwork, by the way, uh, Bob Camp's finishes over Golden's breakdowns are nice and crisp. Uh, one of the great things about the artwork in the NAM has been the accurate depiction of not only the soldiers' lives, but the equipment they carried and the vehicles they used. Golden can draw a good chopper and guns, and he doesn't spare detail when it comes to depicting the environment as well. The colors uh, work too, and this issue does stand out. Even on newsprint, um, or even though it's 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 the newsprint, uh, because sometimes newsprint back in the day used to absorb you know the colors and what have you. Um, whereas uh, once they kind of got the printing process for something like you know. Mondo or Baxter paper down it uh, the colors really really did pop and plus newsprint has that old comic smell where was I oh as we get more and more to the end of the issue it's kind of fun to see Ed's friends give him a send off especially since they arrange a visit with a girl <laughs> and the kid, and they're using the kid who walks around, like the kid who's peddling all that stuff. In fact, I love uh, the panel where Ed's leaving the hut toward the end of the issue. He's zipping up his pants. You see the kid sitting on a scooter wearing sunglasses and counting his money. It's kind of a nice little touch. Uh, there's some, again, the comedy beats in this series have been really, really good. And the end is a, ni- is, not, is a nice touch. The last page, well, you know, it is kind of touching. In four panels, we get a handshake, Ed getting on the plane, a callback to the very first issue with the drama mean bit, which never did get tired because it was never harped on. It, was, it came up over the course of the 13 issues here and there, but for the most part, it wasn't beaten into the ground. And then we get Rob wishing Ed goodbye. Had this series been canceled with this issue, this would have been a great way to end it. In fact, this wraps up not just the first year, but the first year as one large story, as if Murray was writing for the trade, even though that wasn't done back in 1987. 1 through 13 are collected. Uh, Currently, issues 1 through 10 are collected in the current printing of the NOM Volume 1. 11 through 13 are in the NOM Volume 2, along with 14 through 20. There's a Volume 3, which collects material all the way to issue 30, uh, which is the farthest they've reprinted uh, the series. 1 through 12 had been collected in three separate trades in 1989, which was rare for comics back then. It shows you how well this was selling. Uh, in fact, at one point, there was a black and white reprint magazine called the NOM Magazine, which was reprinting issues as well. Uh, 1 through 4 was also collected in 1999. Beyond that, though, uh, there are no trades, and while you can get, like I said, uh, 30 ish, uh, up to issue 30 pretty easily comic shops, and you can get a bunch of them past issue 30 pretty easily in your back issue bins. 
when you get up above issue 60 or 70, uh, like I said, all the way back to the first issue, this book becomes a very hard to find, as does that Punisher of the Nom Final Invasion trade that collected the stories that were unpublished because the series had been uh, canceled. But like I said, I'm getting... Uh, you, you know, give it a try. I'm, I'm still looking for... I think I'm down to like three issues. <laughs> uh, but And I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, because... Before I wanted to get to, uh, I did want to talk a little bit more about about the storyline uh, before I got to historical context and letters and ads and everything else that I cover on the show. Uh, we had a year's worth of stories, and it was 13 issues instead of 12 because we kind of had a fill-in on 7, but even that worked well. And this feels like one guy's journey, and it also feels like we've made the journey with him. Murray's giving us an avatar in head marks. Uh, and, and, and that was at first a way to give us an easy way to learn what we needed to learn without too much uh, explanation on the part of a narrator. But as time went on, Murray made us care about Marks and his friends, even though the storytelling was a little disjointed at times because of the real-time aspect of it. In other words, storylines didn't flow from issue to issue the way they often do. The real-time never got in the way, though, and it felt pretty natural. And in the end... We have closure on one hand, at least when it comes to Ed, at least at this moment. But things are still left open-ended, and this is the case often in war as in life. These 13 issues are well worth the read, and um, I'm certainly looking forward to seeing what's going to happen in the next year's worth of issues. When I come back, I'll talk about historical context, uh, the letters, and the ads. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Mike. Man, it sure is great to be back to From Crisis to Crisis after all this time. It's been a busy year for both of us. For very different reasons. But now we're ready to cover the post-Death and Return Superman stories. Yeah, and we're about to start the books that came out in 1994, which means that we have so much to look forward to, like Bizarro's World. The Battle for and Fall of Metropolis. Superman Doomsday, Hunter, Prey. Worlds Collide. Well, you're looking forward to that one. Oh, bite me. Zero hour. Zero month. And right there at the end, we have Dead Again. And don't forget, the Elseworlds annuals as well. Well, most of them, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. some of those really did suck, don't they? But From Crisis to Crisis is back. New episodes will drop on Thursday, just like before. You can find the show at the Superman homepage, www.supermanhomepage.com, as well as at the Superman Podcast Network, which is at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we also have a Facebook page that you can like by going to www.facebook.com slash from crisis to crisis a superman podcast.com. Is it dot com on there? No. No, no, it's not. No, no dot com. Forget that. <laughs> so from crisis to crisis is back, folks, and better than ever. Well, I'm better than ever. You need some work. No, shut up. No, you 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 shut up. From crisis to crisis, a Superman podcast covering the post-crisis adventures of Superman, one half month at a time, every Thursday at www. SupermanHomePage.com and www.FortressOfBailitude.com And we're back. Agent Orange is an herbicide and a defoliant that was used during the Vietnam War. 
It's a combination of herbicide orange and agent LNX, hence the name agent orange, uh, and whose particular herbicides, uh, two particular herbicides, and its usefulness came into being uh, able to drop it on huge portions of the jungle and clearing it out as a result. Uh, this was an operation that was called Operation Ranch Hand, and the goal of which was to destroy large portions of the jungle in order to eliminate cover for guerrilla forces near the Cambodian and Laotian borders. It was part of a policy of forced draft urbanization, meaning that Agent Orange would scorch the earth and take away the livelihood of the peasant farmers, forcing them to move to cities which the U.S. was holding onto more securely. The key years for the deforestation operation were 1962 to 1971, and that resulted in the destruction of 5 million acres or 20% of Vietnam's jungle and grasslands. It was not without controversy, as there were petitions to the United Nations as early as 1966 for the United States to stop using the defoliant because it was in violation of the Geneva Convention. Most of the effects of Agent Orange weren't seen for years after the war, the chemicals seeped into the water and food supply in those areas, and the result very often were deformed babies as well as other massive health conditions. United States soldiers exposed to Agent Orange have higher rates of cancer, nerve disorders, digestive disorders, skin disorders, and respiratory disorders. In addition, quite a number of men had wives who miscarried babies or whose babies were born with birth defects, and these have been linked, have been linked to Agent Orange. Uh, since then, since the, late, the mid to late 1970s anyway, there have been class action lawsuits against the manufacturers of Agent Orange and the United States government, and there is a compensation fund set up for those who were victims of the chemical. However, as with many payouts for class actions, payouts can often be slow. Many times the victims and victims' rights groups have to go back to court in order to get what was promised to them via lawsuits. The Wikipedia page for Agent Orange is extensive, and if you want to research it, uh, I would check it out. I do have to warn you that there are a couple of very grisly pictures of the effects of Agent Orange, especially on babies and other uh, other people, that are, are very, very, very hard to look at. Uh, so just be careful if you're going on there, um, if you can't stomach those sorts of things. It's, it's, it is something that will stay with you. As for events during the war, uh, during uh, the February 1967, we have the Battle of Tra Binh Dong on February 14th, which is the largest battle ever fought by South Korean forces during the Vietnam War. We have Operation Bribey, or the Battle of At Mai An, fought on February 17th between Australian forces and the Viet Cong, who also had help from the north. And on February 22nd, we have the kickoff of Operation Junction City. This was an 82-day operation that was the largest United States airborne operation in the Vietnam War. It was another attempt to find the elusive headquarters of the Viet Cong and is considered a strategic failure because despite the size of the operation, the Army was not able to use the element of surprise to their advantage. Other events this month not directly related to the war, we have the 25th Amendment to the Constitution, it, this specifies succession to the presidency in the event of sudden death or disability. Uh, that was ratified. Incoming this month, in the letter column, we have a very long letter uh, from John Henry Sane of Medford, Oregon. He is talking about you know how much he likes the uh, the issues and what have you. He says, uh, but he wants he has a couple of serious matters. He says. First, the POW-MIA question. There have been a great deal of evidence put forth that Americans are still being held in Southeast Asia. Evidence 
but not what I would call absolute proof. We still have MIAs on the books dating back to the revolution. Vietnam was a jungle terrain. A body could be swallowed up without a trace, blown to unrecognizable bits, or buried anonymously by some vi villager. When the issue was brought, first brought up some years ago, it was said that Asians have a different way of looking at POWs as spoils of war. In other words, it's a cultural difference. Nowadays, it's because they're quote-unquote dirty, rotten, sneaky, moral commies. It begins to sound very political. And of course, I have to be suspicious of any cause that's made so much money for Sylvester Stallone and Chuck Norris. On the other hand, as I said, there is some very compelling, very credible evidence. Just because photos can be fake and witnesses can lie doesn't mean that they are, they are, they do. Knowing how many misguided people speak of a Jewish Holocaust myth, I would hate to also reject facts just because they are unpleasant. What's your opinion? And then he says, second is something the book will undoubtedly have to deal with eventually. I've been reading several first-hand accounts of the war, and so many GIs speak of quote-unquote incidents that we in the quote-unquote the world would and did call atrocities, war crimes, or just plain murder. Yet, they are described as necessary for survival. Yes, I am aware that the VC slash NVA did things many times worse, but we are conditioned to believe that the quote-unquote good guys don't do those things ever. Tell me honestly, were, there, were such things really as widespread as we are led to believe or is it just to sell books? And uh, he goes on to say, you know, sorry for asking these questions. I probably jabbed a couple of wrong nerves. Uh, and I'm the only one who's, I'm, I'm probably not the only one who's wondering. Doug replies, I decided to print your long letter because you made some good points, which I thought deserved an answer. First, we will show some of the POW experience firsthand with one of our regulars getting captured in issue number 16. I personally believe that there are still American MIAs in the NOM, possibly held against the U.S. paying the reparations agreed to provisionally in Paris in 72. I doubt whether they'll ever be released, however. As for the quote-unquote atrocities, I'm afraid I'm a bad one to answer that. From my own point of view, I never saw what I thought of as an atrocity. From the point of view of those sitting safe and secure in the world, I don't know. Things happened in the Vietnam War. Things that normal people might not have done under any other circumstances. I really don't know how to answer this one. Rest assured that I will do something about the question in the NAM in the future. And then he talks about uh, the, somebody. Then there's Jason Kasky from Iowa, Iowa, him bringing up some of the stuff from issue ten uh, about how you know that Ed's reaction to Michael Burgos' death was was very real. Uh, and then and then they reply, um, I guess this is. And then he mentions you know uh, Mike Golden's art and what have you. And he says, uh, Jason, you and all the others. I guess this is a good place to announce that this issue, issue number thirteen, is Mike Golden's last issue of the Nam. Mike is going on to other things, and I, for one, would like to thank him for his fantastic work on this book. Thanks. Taking over for Mike will be Wayne Van Sant. Um, and if you guys remember, he was uh, issue number seven penciler. And I think you will, uh, I think all of you will come to agree that Wayne is the best possible replacement we could come up with. And actually, to be honest with you, I mean, Wayne Van Zell will be taking over. I'll talk about him uh, when I get to issue 14. But I really do think he was a good artist um, and, and I did enjoy his, his work on the nom from what I've read of it. And somebody writes, Tony Delgado of, of, of in Guam uh, writes about how the, the Aravan and, and, how, and how they are portrayed um, as sort of mercenaries and what have you are really really interesting uh there's also a uh, a note before um before the uh before we get to nom notes about how a group of texas is trying to raise funds for vietnam memorial in dallas um and that was the vietnam memorial fund of dallas uh and apparently steve Irwin provided the info now i don't know if steve Irwin is the name of a penciler who would who would who i know best from his uh penciling Deathstroke, the Terminator, back in the early 90s. Um, 
I don't know if this is the same Steve Irwin, if, if he provided, if he was already in comics or he would wrote in or what have you. It would have been interesting to, 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 to find out a little bit more about that. Nom Notes. Lucky 13 this time. Ed Marks gets to go home, and here are the words you might have missed. And a wake-up. The troops used to keep track of how long they had to go into the country by counting down the number of days left. The last day was always a wake-up, because after you woke up, you headed for the Freedom Bird and went home. AO, Area of Operations, the area each unit was responsible for, for a bird or freedom bird. The magic plane that took you home. Bush, the jungle, the place where Charlie hung out. Charles, the same as Charlie or the VC, the enemy. Defoliant, chemical used to cut back on the greenery and provision. Made it tougher for Charlie to hide. Fast mover, jet aircraft, usually the omnipresent F-4s. MAT, or MAT, military air transport, the guys who handled most of the flights to and from Southeast Asia. PX, the post exchange, a sort of supermarket for GIs. Punji stick, a Charlie booby trap, a short pointed stake set to penetrate an army boot and the foot of anybody stepping on it. Short, short of the time until DEROS, or getting, re- getting ready to go home. Tansenhut, a big airport near Saigon. Ville, a little touch of Vietnamese culture that tended to cluster around our bases. Ads this month. Let's see. Chocolate fun for everyone, courtesy of M&M's. We are still building a reputation using models. Ooh, the Punisher is shooting flames out of a gun, and it says... Hot! Comics! That's right, it's American Entertainment. Ooh, they're having a big G.I. Joe sale this time around. Grab bags. Ooh, 10 comics of a $20 value for 5 bucks. They're having a supply sale. They want comics. Adventurers. Blazing hot. Prices continue to skyrocket. Hot fantasy adventure team book. Mm. One limited edition for $60. Jeez. G.I. Joe Transformers is out by now. You could get Secret Wars number 8 for 99 cents at this time. Huh. Ooh, the Punisher is so hot it's burned the flesh from your hands. That smells really gross. Prices are soaring. One, limit three for 99 cents. Two through four, 99 cents. Yeah, this had just, I remember this, the Punisher had just gotten his, uh, his ongoing. Let's see if there's a hot, oh, Ninja Elite. Hot Ninja Action. That's probably a porn site by now. Green Arrow is hot. Elf Warrior. The new Silver Surfer series is out, and that's hot. So, still, the prices aren't crazy yet, but it's always fun to see these American comics ads kind of grow. Love that Punisher thing. I'll probably post that to the show notes, only because it's awesome. East Coast Comics has an ad. Um, they are they just simply list comics. You can get Chuck Norris number one through four for fifty cents. My local comic shop has the first issue of Chuck Norris Karate Commandos hanging on the wall, <laughs> where they put like all the Silver Age comics and stuff. I want to say they did it as a joke, but I'm pretty sure it's because I think Steve Ditko did the art. <laughs> just I don't know what it's going for. I might have to ask next time I go in. Uh, what else do we have? We have uh, solve these oxyzittles and oxymysolvia transportation problems. <laughs> you can, you can. There's, there's, uh, there's two things. Like you can cut this out if you figure out what these two types of zits are um, and put them in, and then send an entry form. You could win a Nissan 300Z. 
I'm not kidding. A Nissan 300ZX. They're giving away a car if you know how how Oxy works. Ooh, we have an ad for the fall. I, I always, you know, the, the, it's an, it's, this is, I think Alan Davis, yes, Alan Davis and Paul Neary drew an ad for the fall of the mutants. And it's this great uh, illustration, this house ad. Uh, maybe I'll scan this too. Uh, fall of the mutants, it's always darkest. And, and there's a bunch of just X-Men laying down, and new mutants and X-Factor members and stuff laying down in what looks like a desert as the sun sets or rises or whatever. Uh, and it's 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 gorgeous, gorgeous. It's uh, it tells you that it's going to be the Young Kenny X Men two twenty five to two twenty seven X Factor twenty four twenty five and twenty six and the New Mutants fifty nine sixty sixty one, starting in September for Marvel. Um, the thing is, I've read the Fall of the Mutants, and I I don't think I remember actually being like impressed by the Fall of the Mutants. So I'm not entirely sure. Uh, but then again, I read it years ago, so I don't know if it was it was it was really that that great. Um, Inferno was a decent crossover. The Extinction Agenda is alright. X-Men crossovers were always hit or miss. They always seemed to be hyped up way more than they actually delivered. and You always sunk a bunch of money into buying all the issues. Bullpen bulletins uh, this month. They talk about who's the new executive editor, which was Mark Grunewald because Tom DeFalco had been promoted to editor-in-chief. Christy Scheel and Jack Morelli a colorist and a letterer got had a scenic sunset wedding this past May. Don Perlin had a grandchild. Chris Claremont has adapted a science fiction movie coming out in paperback from Ace Books. Has a science fiction novel, sorry. Has a science fiction novel coming out in paperback from Ace Books called First Flights. Uh, and he, Claremont went to a lot of novels and what have you. Um, especially through the 90s after he wasn't doing as much comics work. Uh, speaking of other media, maybe interested to know that old smiling Stanley himself reports that all recent news about our new world pictures, television, and movie tie-ins every month in his soapbox column, which appears in Marvel Age. Don't miss it if you want to learn what's, what's new with new new world would uh, eventually go out of business, <laughs> taking Marvel with it almost. It's a uh, it's it's the '80s in Hollywood. Uh, and and some of these small companies like you know your New World, Orion, um, Vestron was one of them, uh, Carolco, uh, some of these others, they were all they're almost like startups, and some of them had some real hits for a little while, and then some of them either went completely belly up, or were bought out by other studios or, or what have you. Um, I would like to find a good book about the 80s and the business side of movies, kind of along the lines of something like an Easy Rider's Raging Bulls, which covered the 70s so well, uh, because some of the history that I've read, at least, you know, through various articles scattered online, seems interesting. And maybe there's a book out there, I just have to kind of read through it. Our profile is on Ralph Macchio, uh, the editor, not the Karate Kid guy. And then we have our, our usual checklist and, and what have you. What else do we have? We have comic book sets for sale from JNS Comics in Red Bank. I wonder if Kevin Smith used to shop there. Uh, we have the, the rest of a hodgepodge ad, most that actually look for comics. Um, and then we have subscri- the subscription ad with uh, Hawkeye and Mockingbird. We have a Chips Ahoy Betcha Bite a Chip fold-in. Kind of like those mad fold-ins uh, advertisement that would be sure to ruin your comic. 
And on the back, we have Beat Bond at His Own Game, uh, the top secret slash SI espionage role-playing game. Uh, and uh, not something... I remember seeing this quite a bit, but I was never that familiar with it. And that's it. That's it for episode 13. That's it for issue 13. And the first year of stories in the NOM. Now, I won't be back with number 14 just yet, because next episode will be the first of several specials that I'll be having over the course of my run here. So come back for that, and then in two episodes, we'll get into issue number 14 and the NOM's second year. Until then, thanks again for listening. You have been listening to In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics The Nom. The Nom and all of the comics associated with it are copyright Marvel Comics, and as this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes, and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which you can find at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com and may likely be read on the air as I occasionally do email-centric episodes or segments. Thank you for listening and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the saga of The Nom. Then if it don't work out